Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, we're going to break free from something that uh, we have not covered before and talk a little bit about finances. And we are very, very pleased to have Dr. Jim Dolly, who uh, please check him out at whitecoatinvestor.com. Jim is a practicing board certified emergency physician currently in Sandy, Utah, and kind of got it in this. And Jim, welcome to Behind the Knife. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, you know, we, uh, full disclosure or disclaimer, I should say, is that uh, I'm sure you're going to tell us that uh, you're going to give us your perspective. And for all the listeners out there, if you make radical changes, don't hold behind the knife, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> accountable for anything that goes wrong or right for that matter. But Jim, tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself, about kind of your background in terms of medicine, and then a little bit more about how you got involved in finances and started this white coat investor. Sure. Well, I did my undergraduate at Brigham Young where I majored in molecular biology. I had zero interest in business or finance or investing or anything like that. Went on to medical school at the University of Utah and uh, then completed that and went on to residency at the University of Arizona in emergency medicine. About halfway through my residency, I realized I had just been ripped off over and over and over again about by nearly every type of financial professional there is. Recruiters, realtors, insurance agents, financial advisors, uh, even an appraiser, you know, you name it, I'd been ripped off by him. And I figured if I didn't start learning about this stuff, that was just going to keep happening throughout my career. So I went across the street to a used bookstore and started reading books. And that's literally how I got started, just picking up a bunch of personal finance books. And a lot of them were terrible. A few of them were good. Most of them were kind of boring, honestly. Um, but gradually, I realized this stuff isn't that complicated. And yet nobody's teaching it to doctors. So I started interacting on forums and blogs and that sort of a thing. And after a while, I realized uh, that I was doing a lot more teaching than I was learning. And so in 2011, I was uh, about uh, five years out of residency and decided to start the White Coat Investor, mostly so I could just post a link on the forums rather than typing the same thing over and over again into the internet. <laughs> and of course, it took off like a shot because the need for this information is just so huge. And so ever since then, I've been basically running the most widely read physician-specific personal finance and investing website in the world. Uh, I wrote a book in 2014, also called The White Coat Investor, which has been a bestseller on Amazon ever since. In fact, it sells more copies now than it did when I first wrote it uh, three years ago. So it's been a lot of fun. I've gotten to meet a lot of doctors along the way and uh, actually just returned from a four-day speaking trip. I was in Detroit and then Phoenix and then Alabama before making my way home. The one thing we wanted to start out with, we, we did a Twitter poll, very scientific poll, and uh, we had over 75% of our listeners um, that are general surgery residents uh, that are graduating with over $100,000 in debt and um, over seventy or over 50% have greater than $200,000 in debt. How do you manage this during residency and, and then how do you start attacking this uh, once you get a real job? Well, the first thing I'd tell you is I think you did your poll all wrong and I think the results tell you that. When half the people are in the top category, it means you need more categories. <laughs> and actually, I actually see that with polls all the time of medical students and uh, residents. There was a recent one 
uh, done by the AMA, they did the same thing. They stopped at $200,000, and half the people have more than that. I mean, the average these days is $200,000. As you come out of medical school, as of 2015, MDs have almost $200,000, and DOs have a little bit over $200,000 on average. But what a lot of people don't realize is those are averages. There's lots of people out there that can owe a lot more than that. I wrote a blog post a few months ago called What to Do If You Have you know, Monster Debt. And uh, at that time, my record for a single doctor for student loans was $635,000. And quickly, within a few days, I'd run into a bunch of people that had quite a bit more than that, including one with eight hundred, one with 950. And my record currently, which is uh, somebody that was on a Facebook group that said they had $1.2 And it's not unusual at all for me to run into two physician couples that have eight hundred or $900,000 these days. So the debt burden can certainly be much worse than what the uh, poll numbers you're seeing out there uh, really look like. The good news for a typical physician is your debt-to-income ratio isn't too bad. I mean, what you've got uh, in general is a ratio of about 0.8%. If a physician comes out of residency making $250,000 and they owe $200,000, on average, that's not too bad. And that's what I recommend people keep it to is a ratio less than one. Um, but the dentists, for instance, are already much worse than that. Their average ratio is 1.6 already. And once you get much beyond about two, it becomes very difficult to pay back your loans at all and may even be impossible by the time you get to a debt-to-income ratio of about four. So if your listeners are only at 100 or 200,000, I think they're doing pretty good. They ought to be able to get that paid off in just a few years as a general surgeon if they can manage to control their lifestyle. But your question was mostly what to do during residency and what to do afterward. And it's actually the second part of the question is far easier to answer. It's very simple after residency. When you finish residency, if you are working for a 501c3 employer, they directly employ you. You don't just contract with them. But if you are directly employed by a 501c3, you should stay in the government payment programs and certify each year for public service loan forgiveness. And after making 120 monthly payments, so 10 years worth of payments under the government programs, everything else should be forgiven. And that's the public service loan forgiveness program. It's wonderful. It gets forgiven tax-free, and, uh, and it's great. If you are not going to be working directly for a 501c3 nonprofit hospital, what you ought to do is refinance your loans at that point. And you can do that with about a dozen companies out there that are doing student loan refinancing for doctors these days. The most commonly known ones are SoFi and DRB and Common Bond and uh, Earnest and Credible are probably the most common ones. I have uh, business relationships with all of them. They all advertise on my website. But I have negotiated a special deal with my, for my readers with them that if they refinance through the links on my site, they get an extra 300 bucks back. I hope they put that toward uh, the balance of their loans rather than go spend it, but I guess you can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> the first part of the question, what to do with your student loans during residency, is far more complicated. And in fact, is one of the best times in your career to actually get professional advice about what to do with your finances. If you are have a relatively straightforward situation, what you probably want to do is do the revised pay-as-you-earn program, or repay. And the reason for that is the government will actually subsidize your interest rate on those payments. 
But all of the government uh, reduced payment programs, these income-driven repayment programs, such as IBR or income-based repayment or pay-as-you-earn, also abbreviated as pay, P-A-Y-E, and repay are all excellent programs to help you reduce the payments during residency. Because basically, if you have the average student loans and the average resident salary, you literally can't make the regular payments during residency. You either have to basically defer them or you have to go into these government programs. And if you have any chance at all of, of working at a 501c3 later, you definitely want to be in the government programs because all those little tiny payments you make during residency uh, add up to your 120 payments. And that's actually why there's something left to forgive after 10 years because you didn't make the standard payments for if you're a general surgeon for the first five years because you were in residency. And so the key is to try to minimize how large those loans get uh, by taking advantage of that interest rate subsidy under repay and to make as many payments as you can in case you decide to go for uh, public service loan forgiveness. But there are some interesting situations if you're married to another high earner you might want to be in the pay program instead and file your taxes married filing separately um, to maximize the amount you might be able to get forgiven later. And there's a few unique types of loans where it actually makes sense to be in the IBR program. And so it just can get really complicated during residency determining exactly the best way to manage your loans. It's not too difficult if you know you're going to be paying them back yourself and not going for forgiveness. But if you're trying to maximize the amount you can get forgiven, it's really a great time to get some professional advice. Jim, one of the things that comes up oftentimes is kind of talking about investing or loans or just in general in finance. One of the things you said is seeking out professional help. Many people that I talk to will talk about how they were, quote unquote, scammed by people who saw that they were a medical student, saw that they were a resident and tried to take advantage of them, whether it be through uh, high loads or high taxes or high fees and kind of hidden here and there. How can you vet if you're not really into finance and you don't know a whole lot about it in terms of what's a valid, what's a, you know, a very, uh, a good company or a good, a good person to work with. And do you have any advice regarding resources to seek? Sure. I mean, it's really a difficult thing. What you ask to not know anything about finances yet be able to evaluate what good financial advice looks like. Uh, the truth of the matter is by the time you can really choose a good financial advisor, you probably know enough to do it yourself. Uh, it's not that complicated to do it yourself, but that said, probably 80% of docs want and need uh, a financial advisor. So my mantra on that topic is to get good advice at a fair price. And good advice means they're not a commissioned salesman, meaning they're giving you fee-only advice. You pay them a fee and they give you advice. But that's not the way that the vast majority of people who call themselves financial advisors work. Most of them are selling financial products, whether they're loaded mutual funds or whether they're commissioned permanent insurance products. Uh, and so you have to be very careful to make sure the advice you're getting is fee-only. They use another term called fee-based, which means they charge commissions and fees. Uh, and a lot of people mistake that for fee only. I know I did. Um, and so that's probably the first key. The second key is to make sure you're getting good advice at a fair price. And a fair price is, well, at what price can you get good advice? And financial advice is expensive stuff, but a fair price is a four-figure amount per year. If you're paying less than $10,000 a year, chances are good you're getting a pretty fair price. If you're paying twenty dollars or $30,000 a year, you're probably being ripped off. Because there are people willing to manage your investments for one to $5,000 per year. 
So if you're paying 20, you've got to wonder why am I paying so much when there's people willing to do it and that do a good job for much less. And so I think you have to be a little bit careful as you go about evaluating financial advisors to make sure that the advice they're giving you is good and that their price is fair. One of the best things to read when you're looking at a financial advisor is a form they have to file with the government called the ADV2. And that form is their disclosure form. There's certain things they're required to disclose to their clients, including their methods of investing, their experience level, uh, their prior employers, anybody that's ever sued them or had a complaint against them that was found to be valid, as well as their fee schedule. And I would guess the vast majority of docs have never read their advisor's ADV2, which is simply inexcusable. So I recommend that you do that as you search for a financial advisor as well. And if you're just looking for a shortcut, I've got a list of advertisers on my website, people that I've vetted and I feel comfortable referring my readers to uh, who are financial advisors. But you just got to realize that every advisor's got a little bit of a conflict of interest. And even, even the cheapest financial advisors are still going to cost you thousands of dollars per year. Are there any specific, this is John, by the way, is there any specific things that uh, stand out in these financial advisors that you should be looking for if you're a new physician that's just got out of residency? I think the, one of the best ways to get started is to find someone who gives advice on an hourly basis. And the typical hourly rate you're going to pay is anywhere from $150 to $400 an hour. But that's dirt cheap compared to getting bad advice, and it's dirt cheap compared to paying uh, an asset under management fee for the rest of your life, which is the way most financial advisors want to be paid. And while that isn't very much money in the beginning, if you don't pay attention to it and you just stick with them as your assets grow, your asset under management fee could grow to be thirty dollars or $40,000 a year uh, within you know a decade or two, and that's obviously too much to be paying for financial advice. So, Jim, one of the things that, uh, you know, you have on your website is that there are resources out there. Let's say that you don't want to make that splurge and go in terms of um, having a financial advisor. Similar to when patients come to us and they have difficulties with something they've read on the Internet. Are there other websites in addition to yours or other resources that you found that are valuable as a nice place to start? Yeah, I keep a list of recommended websites also under the recommendations tab on my site um, that recommends all kinds of great websites. Some of the best known ones includes uh, one of my partner blogs, uh, which is called Physician on Fire. It's written by a 41-year-old anesthesiologist who's financially independent and basically teaches those who are interested in reaching financial independence very early in their career how they can do that. Uh, a great forum is the bogleheads.org forum. It's very active, and you're likely to get very good, unbiased advice from the people there. Uh, it's amazing how quickly you can get answers to your questions there as well, just because there's so many people participating on that forum. I have a forum on my website as well, where you can ask people any question you like, and you'll get good answers. Um, a forum that's useful for tax questions in particular can be found at fairmark.com. So while the vast majority of internet forums are kind of trash as far as investing advice goes, there are a few good ones out there, and you can get some uh, good advice there as well. If for nothing else, you can run your portfolio by them and get a second opinion on what your advisor is telling you, and uh, you can't beat the price anyway. 
one question I have is with investments and getting someone to help you manage your investments. At what kind of uh, portfolio of, um, amount do you think it's uh, worthwhile? Because you know re- we read more and more about doing Vanguard index funds is you know a good way to go and it's the cheapest and um, you'll get you know basically meet or beat any of these uh, mutual funds or advisors. Um, at what, what point do you recommend people getting help with the investments? Well, I don't think there's really a minimum or a maximum where you got to go to get help with your investments. I think, in fact, if you have some interest in being a do-it-yourself advisor, a do-it-yourself investor, I think that's a very reasonable way to go. And there's a lot of benefits to that. Number one, you pay a lot more attention to it when you know you're the buck stops with you. Um, so I think that's a great way to do it. Plus, it's much easier when you start managing your own money when it's a four-figure amount. Because then as your portfolio grows to a five-figure amount and a six-figure amount and a seven-figure amount, it's really the same tasks. You're just managing more zeros. Um, but you know, if you get used to watching your investments fluctuate when they're very small and you get used to putting in buy and sell orders when there's not that much money on the line, uh, it gets you used to it. And so you're very comfortable with it a decade later when you might be managing a million dollars. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefit to really trying to do it yourself in the beginning before you feel like there's a lot to lose. Um, but as far as when to get advice, you know, I mean, in the beginning is when it's most valuable because you have that much more time uh, for your money to compound and for those good decisions uh, to take effect you know, over the course of your financial life. So I would say don't wait until you have a certain minimum to go get financial advice. If you feel like it's not something you're going to want to learn how to do yourself, and that's a totally reasonable option. And doctors can certainly do that if they have enough interest to gain the knowledge and discipline they need. Um, but if you feel like you're not going to do that, I'd get advice early on. The difficulty comes into getting a financial advisor to give you advice early on. <laughs> because so many of them work under an asset under management fee structure. And you know, even if they're charging you 1% or 2% of your assets under management each year, if your portfolio is a four-figure amount, that's not worth their time. Uh, and so a lot of them have a minimum of 500000 or a million dollars before they even want to talk to you. Um, so you're, you're limited to people that you're paying a flat fee to or people that will um, take you on an, uh, an hourly rate or that just see so much potential in your earning potential that they'll take you on even when you don't have much. Um, but that's really... Uh, the difficulty of getting advice early on is it's difficult for them to get paid. So they don't go looking for you. The only people that come looking for you are the ones who want to sell you something. <laughs> Jim, let's talk a little bit about what makes a physician kind of uh, unique. There's lots of different uh, resources out there. There's lots of different financial advisors. But you got into this as a doctor and then kind of it blossomed out of there with uh, the website and the book and all the speaking and everything that you've done. But you know, to the average, uh, you know, listener out there who is in the medical field, what do you say to them? They say, well, you know, is, is there specifics about me being in medicine that I need to look for somebody that has that unique perspective about me? And are, are there different tactics that I can take? Or is it just the earning potential that potential that um, that people in the medical field have? Or how does that all come together? Well, the truth of the matter is 95% of personal finance and investing, almost everything in investing, is not physician-specific. The only things that are really unique to doctors are basically, basically three things. 
we've got some unique student loan issues. The fact that we end up with these monstrously sized student loans and figuring out the way to interact with all the government programs and when to refinance them and when to pay them off versus investing, those kinds of issues are kind of unique to doctors. We have rather unique uh, retirement plan needs. Our retirement plans tend to be more complicated than those of average Joe. Average Joe might have a 401k at his company and he might have a Roth IRA and that's basically it. Whereas a typical doctor might have four or five, six, maybe more uh, retirement accounts that he's trying to figure out the rules of each of them and when to use one over another and what the advantages are and trying to rebalance his portfolio across the various accounts. Uh, and so that's kind of unique to doctors. And then, of course, we have some unique asset protection issues. We're all worried we're going to be sued uh, for an amount above our policy limits. And we probably do have a little bit higher liability than, than average Joe. And so those are really the three physician, unique physician things. Aside from that, everything's the same as everybody else. We just happen to earn a little bit more. And so we're a little bit bigger, bigger of a target for the financial services industry. You know, if you, if you catch them in an unguarded moment, they'll refer to you as a whale. And they're the uh, whale hunters out trying to, trying to spear you. Well, I think that's a great uh, lead-in into uh, discussion. Two things. Uh, home buying is one of the uh, things a lot of physicians face uh, coming straight out of uh, residency. They um, get their new big job, and they're excited, and they want to they get a house. And I know there's certain programs there that allow, um, you know, many of us don't have, uh, you know, $50,000 saved for our down payment. Um, how do you recommend, uh, you know, new physicians going out there into the home buying uh, process? What, what recommendations do you have for them? Well, the recommendation I have is that they don't, uh, which is unusual for them to hear because they just can't believe it because nobody's ever told them don't buy a home before. Uh, you've got this huge, you know, hundreds of billion dollar realtor injury, uh, realtor uh, industry, and this huge mortgage lending industry out there. And both of them are telling you over and over again, buy a house, buy a house, buy a house. Buying a house is the American dream. Uh, you know, if you're renting, you're throwing money away. And so I spend a lot of time trying to convince doctors, particularly residents, that it's okay to rent a house, that it's not some huge panacea that will solve all of your financial problems if you just buy a house. And so I try to give people that option to make them at least consider renting, particularly during residency and for a period of six to 12 months after residency. And that gives you a lot of benefits. And the first is that, well, you got time to concentrate on your residency and you got time to concentrate on your new attending job rather than all this home buying and home maintenance crap. Um, but the other reason why is that you're just not in a great financial position to buy a house at that stage of your life. You don't have a down payment. You owe hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. You're not sure the job's going to work out. I mean, 50% of doctors leave their job within the first two years after residency. And if you're in residency, at most, you're going to be there for five years, um, which, you know, is about how long it takes to break even on average with buying a home if everything works out okay. And so I spend a lot of time talking people out of trying to talk people out of buying a home. I'm rarely successful, though. Almost every doctor wants to buy a home, both as a resident and uh, as soon as they're moving out of residency. And so in some ways, I'm almost ready to give up on talking them out of it. <laughs> but there's a few programs that do help you if you've decided I'm going to buy a home no matter what, uh, either in residency or as I move out of residency. And these are called doctor mortgages or physician mortgages. And the one benefit of them is that you can put down less than 20% 
and avoid paying private mortgage insurance. Private mortgage insurance, or PMI, is that insurance that you pay for that protects your lender from you defaulting on your payments. It doesn't actually do you any good at all, but they require it if you put down less than 20% on any sort of a conventional mortgage. Well, these doctor mortgage lenders have decided, you know what, these guys are a pretty good bet. They're probably going to make the payments. Uh, Let's cut them a little bit of slack and not give them PMI. In exchange for that, they give you a slightly higher rate and slightly higher fees. Uh, But it's not a terrible deal for a mortgage, especially if you have a better use for your money, such as paying off student loans or maxing out retirement accounts. And most doctors do. So I'm not horribly against them buying a home using uh, a doctor mortgage if they've decided that buying a home is right for them. Um, But the problem is too many of them don't even consider renting, even though they would probably come out ahead in many situations if they would. The next thing we want to go into is, uh, you know, a lot of people will talk about disability insurance. And uh, some people find this very important and a lot of people combine it along with their life insurance. Can you maybe comment on that? Sure. Disability insurance is something that every doctor needs unless they are uh, financially independent. If you actually need the income you're generating from your work, you need disability insurance. That ranges from the attending to a physician that might be out for 30 years. If they're not financially independent, they need disability insurance. Um, You know, it's basically protecting your most valuable asset, which is your future earnings. The problem with disability insurance is that disability is many shades of gray. It's not so black and white like life insurance. Life insurance, you know, there's a few shades of gray in between alive and dead, and you and I see all of them. It lasts about 15 minutes. Uh, You know, it just doesn't take that long to sort out. But there's lots of different ways in which you can be disabled enough not not to be able to do your job. And so you want a disability policy with a very strong definition of what disability is. You want it to pay out if you're actually disabled. And that's the difference between many disability insurance policies out there. Some of them have a stronger definition than others. For example, if you're disabled due to a psychiatric reason, a lot of policies will only pay for a couple of years. They won't pay until you're 65. And so, you know, the stronger policies will cover that until you're 65. Um, And so there's a lot of different nuance to a disability insurance policy. So the way I recommend you buy one is that you go to an independent insurance agent that can sell you a policy from any company. And in general, for any given specialty, gender, and state, there's a policy that's right for you from among the big five or six companies. And so they can help you to get that policy, explain how it works, explain why the price is a little bit different from the other policies in that, uh, in that list of the big five companies, and, um, and help you to uh, you know, get a policy that's right for you. But the nice thing about this is even if you got to spend a couple hours understanding what a disability policy looks like and what all the terms mean, this is something you really only have to buy once or twice in your career. You don't have to buy it very often. Um, and so you can learn about it, get what's right for you, and basically just put it on autopilot for the rest of your career, knowing that you'll cancel it eventually when you become financially independent. Jim, so we focus a little bit on the early stages of the career in medical student residency. What advice and how do things change when you're more mid? We have a lot of uh, large range of listeners here on the podcast. What about the mid-career person or those people who take their that first kind of major change or major jump in their income and then, and then the people towards the tail end of their career? 
Sure. Well, there's a lot of different financial issues that can obviously affect you later in life as well. But, you know, the problem is by mid-career, doctors are all over the place with regards to their financial situations. It's a little bit of a tale of two cities. You know, by age 45 or so, you've got some doctors that are financially independent and able to retire anytime they like. Meanwhile, you've got other doctors uh, that have bought way too big of a home, have a huge mortgage, are running as fast as they can on their, their financial treadmill, still haven't paid off their student loans, and have hardly anything saved for retirement. So there's such a huge variation between doctors by mid-career that it's really hard to give general advice that applies to all of them. Uh, but there's a few things that mid-career docs do have in common. Uh, one, by this point, hopefully you've saved you know, a significant amount and you've got your nest egg growing at this point. And you can start looking at ways in which uh, you can mold your career so that you're doing the things that you actually want to be doing and doing less of the things you don't enjoy. It might be for a surgeon, you might be dropping some procedures you don't enjoy doing or taking a little bit less call. Uh, you know, doing a little less trauma work, that sort of a thing. Um, it might also mean, uh, you know, going out and being independent in some way and owning your own practice or, or something else that's going to help to promote your longevity in your career. Because the truth of the matter is, if we can just keep you from burning out so you can work until you're 60 or 65 and enjoy the work, um, you know, you can make a lot of financial decisions if you can get uh, financial mistakes, rather, if you can, if you can extend your career long enough uh, that you can enjoy working into your 60s. Um, and so I think those are a lot of the issues that you need to be focusing on at mid-career. The other one that's coming up very rapidly for most of us by mid-career is paying for college for our kids. And, um, you know, we're so focused on paying off our own loans in early career that maybe we haven't done much saving toward uh, our children's college. And uh, mid-career is a great time to really get going on that. <clears throat> Most doctors probably ought to be using a 529 plan, which is a state-sponsored um, savings plan that may give you a state tax break when you put money in, allows the money to grow in a tax-protected manner, and then when the money comes out of the account, as long as it's used for college or living expenses while the child's in college, um, comes out tax-free as well. And so that's a great way to save for college. But mid-career issues, those are the main ones, is making sure you're extending the longevity of your career, correcting any mistakes you might have made financially early in your career, and, um, and, and really making sure you can, you can work a full career and, and pay for your kids to go to college. By late career, the focus becomes much more on retirement and deciding when am I going to claim Social Security. The answer is almost always 70 for the higher earning member of a couple, or if you're single, uh, the answer is almost always hold off until 70 to take your Social Security. But also, how, when, how do I know when I have enough for retirement? And uh, other issues include how to spend my money in retirement. You know, Those are the main issues that people uh, run into toward their end of their career. Uh, occasionally, you've got to decide when to when to drop your life insurance, when to drop your disability insurance. Um, you know, and if you've done very well financially, you may have some estate planning issues you need to deal with as well. Um, but those are the main issues that people have to deal with as they move through their careers. And they're good times to check in with, you know, an hour, even if you're doing this all yourself, it's a good time to check in with an hourly rate financial advisor and, uh, and go over some of those issues and, and help solve them if you don't feel comfortable doing it on your own. 
I have a question for you. Uh, d- discussing on how much do you need to retire, I think a lot of us, you know, kind of don't really have a good grasp of that. And the other thing we don't have a grasp of is, you know, many of us aren't going to start saving till we're about thirty. Um, you know, how much do we need to be saving on average with an average return, just to kind of get the the number in our heads to take how serious this issue is? Because I know some of us have met with financial planners and kind of blown away by if we want to retire at sixty five, how much we need to be putting away every month to have a you know comfortable retirement. So could you just give us a few numbers there that to help kind of put this in perspective? Sure. First of all, I think if you're saving at thirty, you're doing great. You know, there's lots of doctors that don't start until they're 35 or 40 or even later. So if you're starting at 30, that's great, even if you're not saving very much early on. Um, But the general advice I give to attending physicians is they need to be putting 20% of their gross income toward retirement. And if they can do that from the beginning of their career, they'll have a comfortable retirement unless they're trying to retire at 45 or 50. If you want to retire super early, you're going to have to save more than that. Um, but if you can put away 20%, that'll be enough if you invest it in any kind of a reasonable manner uh, to ensure you have a comfortable retirement at some time in your early 60s. Um, but you, you got to keep in mind the amount you need for retirement can be quite a large amount. Uh, the general equation here is you take how much you're spending, subtract any guaranteed income you might have from that, such as Social Security or a pension, and multiply what's left by 25. And that tells you basically how much you need to retire. So if you're spending, you know, after Social Security, you're spending $100,000 a year, that's $2.5 million you need to retire. The good news about retirement savings is you don't have to replace your entire physician income, right? Once you're retired, you don't have to save for retirement. You don't have to save for your kid's college. Hopefully those kids are out of the house and you're no longer paying their expenses. Your tax bill has likely gone down dramatically. You're certainly not paying any more Social Security or Medicare taxes. Um, You also uh, may have fewer work-related expenses. Um, And so in general, your spending goes down dramatically, particularly for a high earner uh, when you enter into retirement. Most physicians find that they can maintain their pre-retirement lifestyle on 25 to 50 percent of their uh, previous uh, high salary. Um, And so I think it's important to recognize that you don't have to be able to replace $400,000 a year in income to have the same lifestyle that you had while you were making $400,000 during your peak earnings years and feeding a bunch of kids and saving for retirement and their college and paying a ton in taxes and all that. It can be much less than that. But most docs, when you ask them, you know, that have, have really dived into this subject, most of them are looking at wanting to have two to three to four million dollars uh, in their nest egg when they punch out and when they retire. The one other thing I want to back up real quickly, we spoke about the uh, the 529 plans. Uh, can you comment on the Coverdell as well? Sure. The Coverdell uh, is an educational savings plan that has one benefit, uh, really two benefits over a 529 and a lot of downsides. The benefits are the fees can be slightly lower if you go someplace like Vanguard to open your Coverdell ESA. But the main reason people use these accounts is to pay for educational expenses before college. For example, if your kids are going to go to a private high school, uh, you can't use a 529 to pay for that, but you can use a Coverdell ESA to pay for that. But the downsides of an ESA are significant. You don't get a state tax break, unlike many states you do in a 529. 
you also can only put $2,000 a year into it, which is dramatically less than the $14,000 a year you can put into a 529. Uh, and so that's the main factor that keeps a lot of doctors from using them for their college savings is you just can't put much money in there each year. Um, but it's certainly not an unreasonable thing to do to put money in there. Uh, I just stopped using it when I had access to a very good state 529 uh, with the state tax credit. So, Jim, the other thing that comes up sometimes is a um, little bit about um, Roths, traditional Roths, uh, a, a, you know, traditional IRA, a Roth IRA. When when can you get into that? When do you make too much money? And is there a loophole out there that you can still kind of invest into a Roth by converting the traditional Roth or the traditional IRA back into a Roth? A lot of these things are, uh, you know, things that are out there in books. How much how much of it is true and how much how much of it is relative to us? Well, it's all very relevant to you. The Roth versus traditional issues are should be well understood by every physician investor. Uh, as a general rule. Uh, you want to use a tax-free retirement account or a Roth account during your during the years in which you don't have a lot of earnings. Uh, when you're a resident, maybe that first year as you become uh, an attending, maybe if you have a sabbatical year or if you're going part-time or the years in between early retirement and and when you actually start taking Social Security. Those are good times to try to get more money into a Roth account. But during your peak earnings years, you want to generally be using a tax-deferred retirement account like a typical 401k. And the reason why is you get to take a tax break at your marginal tax rate for the money you put in there during your peak earnings years. You might be saving 40 or 45% in taxes on every dollar you put into that account during your peak earnings years. Uh, whereas when you take the money out, you get to fill the brackets uh, with, with that money as you withdraw it. Uh, for example, a uh, couple that was taking the standard deduction, had no children at home, and had no other deductions um, or any other sources of income during retirement, the first $20,000 a year they take out of their tax-deferred account comes out totally tax-free. The next $18,000 comes out at 10%. The next $50,000 comes out at 15%. The next 75000 a year comes out at 25%. So on average, you might be taking that money out on an average of 15%. And if you're saving 40% going in and paying 15% coming out, that's really a winning strategy. So that's why during your peak earnings years, you want to use tax-deferred accounts as much as possible. Now, Roth IRAs are also a great way to invest. They're a tax-free account, you know, so you don't get a tax break when you put the money in, but it grows in a tax-protected way. And when you take it out uh, to spend it in retirement, it comes out totally tax-free. So they're wonderful things to have in retirement. Um, prior to 2010, there were basically three relevant laws to IRAs. The first one was that um, you can't deduct uh, a contribution to a traditional IRA if you have a retirement plan at work, like most doctors do, um, and you make a typical physician salary. You also could not contribute directly to a Roth IRA at a typical physician's salary, nor could you convert money from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA by paying the taxes on it and then having it be tax-free ever after. But in 2010, Congress changed one of those rules. They changed the rule about the conversions so that high earners could convert money from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. 
And what that enables doctors to do is to do what's called the backdoor Roth IRA. And with the backdoor Roth IRA, what you do is you make your contribution to the traditional IRA. Because anybody that's earning money can contribute to a traditional IRA, even if they can't deduct it. And then the next day, you transfer that money from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. And that transfer is totally tax-free because you didn't get the tax break for the initial contribution to the traditional IRA. So the end result is you're still able to contribute through a, to a Roth IRA. You just have to do it indirectly uh, through the back door. And it sounds like it's some sort of a tax scheme that it's illegal or something. But this is very well known and this is very uh, widely done. Forbes has written about it. You know, it's in the Wall Street Journal. The IRS has published statements about it. Uh, you know, Congress knows about it. This is not something that's being done in the dark. And there's thousands and thousands of docs doing it every year. The one thing you do have to be aware of, though, is this rule called the pro rata rule which basically says if you have any other money in a traditional IRA, a SEP IRA, or a simple IRA, you have to get rid of it by the end of the year in which you do the conversion step or else the conversion is going to be done pro rata and isn't going to be tax-free. And so you just have to make sure that you either convert your entire traditional IRA if it's small or that you roll it into a 401k, which they don't care about if it's large. Um, but that's the backdoor Roth IRA, and you can do it for yourself and for your spouse. It's $5,500 a year for each of you, or if you're over 50, $6,500 a year. But it's a great way to get some money into a tax-free account, even during your peak earnings years. You know, you mentioned something that comes up a lot, too, that gets thrown around. Can you explain in basic terms the SEP, and, and, and how does that fit into all of this, and kind of roll that into a little bit in terms of the 403B and the 457, and where, where do all these things come into place? Sure. A brief overview of retirement accounts is really what you're looking for, it sounds like. Uh, 401k is a basic retirement plan. Uh, typically, you put in tax-deferred dollars, but there are Roth options for the employee portion of the contribution. In general, there's also an employer contribution. It might be a match from your employer or if you're self-employed and it's a profit sharing plan, you know, you're doing the match yourself. A 403B is almost essentially like a 401k, but it's generally offered by uh, an academic or a government employer. So those in academics often, instead of a 401k, they have a 403B. The rules are very slightly different. It's almost exactly the same thing. People with a 403B also find they're often offered a 457B, which is another type of tax-deferred retirement account. The difference between the 403B and the 457B is that you own the 403B and technically your employer owns the 457B. They both have an $18,000 a year contribution limit for somebody under 50 and they're both generally tax-deferred accounts, although they can have Roth options. Uh, if you want to use those. Um, but the thing you have to worry about with a 457B is if your employer goes out of business, that account is subject to their creditors. So you better make sure your employer is a ve very stable employer, like you know the state government, that sort of a thing, before relying on a 457B. If it's a hospital, it looks like it might go bankrupt at any time. You probably don't want to be putting money into their 457B. If you switch jobs, can they can they keep that 457 and not give it to you if you go somewhere else? Is there rules about how long you need to be vested or anything in terms of that? 
Well, it's definitely worth reading the plan document. There's generally rules on how long it takes to vest on the employer's contribution to the account. Uh, but in general, you get your money. You don't lose that when you leave. You only lose the employer's match in most of these accounts. Um, so, it, it, But the, with the 457B, the withdrawal options are not usually nearly as good as what they are in a 401k or a 403b. You might have to take all the money out in the year you leave the employer. You might be able to leave it in there and take it out over five years, but you don't have nearly the options you do in a 403b. So make sure you read the plan document and understand what kind of a 457B you've got before you decide to really embrace it wholeheartedly. Now, if you're self-employed, you have you know, you basically get to pick your own retirement account. And a lot of people pick a SEP IRA because it's very simple to use. It's basically like a big traditional IRA, except you get to contribute $54,000 a year to it if, you have, uh, if you're under 50 and you have enough income to do so. But the truth of the matter is you're almost always better off opening up an individual 401k instead of a SEP IRA. And it's only a few more pages of paperwork you do have to get an employer identification number from the IRS, but that's free and takes literally two minutes online. Um, and the upsides are significant. Number one, you don't have that SEP IRA getting in the way of your backdoor Roth IRA, but you also are able to max out an individual 401k at a lower level of income than you can max out a SEP IRA. Both of them you can put $54,000 a year into, but if you have an income that's uh, you know under $200,000, you're going to be able to get a lot more into an individual 401k than you are into a SEP IRA. And that helps reduce your taxes and have more for retirement. The one last thing that kind of goes along with those uh, other things is setting up a trust. Uh, you know, when in your career should you consider starting to do this? And uh, does it depend on the kids you have and how many assets you have? Is there a certain number you would look into that? Well, there's two basic types of trust. The first is what's called a revocable trust. And this is a trust where you put your assets into it, into them, and you can pull them out at any time. Now, because you can pull those assets out at any time, this doesn't give you any asset protection whatsoever. The purpose of a revocable trust is for those assets to not go through probate in the event of your death. Probate is expensive. It's time-consuming. It's a public process. Um, and you're not doing your heirs any favors by passing them money uh, just by writing down who gets what in your will and having it go through probate. You're much better off putting those assets, whether it's your home, your car, your checking account, whatever, in a trust and having uh, the trust distributed according to the terms of the trust. So most people should have a revocable trust in place by the time they die. Now, do you need it when you're 35? Probably not. You're probably not going to die in your 30s. But eventually, as you get older, you're probably going to want to implement a revocable trust. The other type of trust is an irrevocable trust. And this is a trust where when you put assets into it, you can't take them back out. And that's useful for asset protection because you basically don't own them anymore. So if, heaven forbid, you're one of those very rare individuals that are successfully sued for an amount above your policy limits... They can't touch what's in the irrevocable trust. Um, but it's also useful for estate planning purposes. If for some reason you've done very well financially as a doctor and you're going to have more than $11 million this year, which is what the federal estate tax exemption amount is, well, any money that you put into that trust before you die, um, as long as you're putting it in at an amount that isn't subject to the gift tax limits, which is about $14,000 a year for each of you, for each beneficiary of the trust, 
it allows you to get some money out of your estate so you don't have to pay estate taxes on it. But most docs aren't going to be paying estate taxes. They just don't make enough and don't save enough and don't have enough when they die that the estate tax even applies to them. Um, so mostly what you want to do is make sure you have a revocable trust in place before you die. And if you have some unique asset protection or estate planning issues, you might want to look into an irrevocable trust as well. Jim, I know some uh, friends that do some moonlighting or do some 1099 type work that have incorporated themselves or incorporated their families. They then use that as a way to, you know, you know, use the, the tax and all the advantages and everything like that. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, making an LLC or a PA or a PS or whatever, whatever kind of subset that is? And is that recommended? I know it's not that hard to do. Yeah, it can, it's a little bit of a complicated question. A lot of docs think they're going to get some incredible increase in their liability protection and huge tax benefits by incorporating. And the truth of the matter is they generally don't. And the reason why is malpractice is always personal. Incorporating doesn't protect you a bit from malpractice. Um, it might protect you from some business-related issues. For example, if you have a bunch of employees and your employee sues you for breach of contract, then you can protect some of your personal assets by having a corporation. But for the most part, this doesn't reduce the main sources of liability for a doctor. In addition, all these uh, deductions that you can take by being in business for yourself, all these self-employed deductions, you can take all those as a sole proprietor, which is what you are you know, just by virtue of receiving a 1099. You don't have to file with the state. You don't have to open an LLC. You certainly don't have to incorporate to deduct all of those benefits, you know, your self-employed retirement contributions, your self-employed health insurance, all your business expenses, you can deduct all those without being incorporated. The only real benefit of incorporating for a doc is if you become an S corporation, which passes through all its income to you every year and you pay it on your personal tax return. But what you can do is you can split your income between salary and distribution. And on distribution, you basically don't have to pay Medicare tax. So you get out of 2.9% tax on whatever portion of your income you call distribution. So if, for example, you're making $400,000 a year and you call uh, $300,000 of it salary and $100,000 of it distribution, well, you just save yourself $2,900 in Medicare taxes. And so that's the benefit of incorporating. If you're in a situation where the costs and hassle of incorporation will be less than the benefit you get from saving on Medicare taxes, then it may be worth incorporating for you. But I wouldn't feel like you have to go out, like every doctor has to go out and do it just because they have a little bit of 1099 income. You certainly do not. Uh, Dr. Dolly, we've learned uh, many great uh, things about investing and uh, the complicated sides of trusts, but uh, the dirty word that no one likes to talk about is uh, budgeting. Um, and I know this is probably the most important thing for residents and especially in doctors of all stages. Uh, do you have any advice on how to get started with the budget and maybe uh, websites or um, people to read on how to be successful at this? Because many people try and many people fail. Yeah. Well, the truth of the matter is the four most important words I can tell any doctor, whether he's in training or shortly out of training, is live like a resident. And that's really the secret to becoming wealthy as a physician. The longer you can live the same standard of living you had as a resident while earning as an attending, the better financial position you're going to be in. 
And that's exactly what my wife and I did for about four years after residency. We gave ourselves a little bit of an increase. You know, when I came out of residency, I was making about $40,000 a year. And we probably lived on fifty or 60000 for those four years and basically saved the difference. And that made all the difference. By the time we were seven years out of residency, we were millionaires already. And so your main benefit as a physician, your main tool for building wealth is your income. So the goal is not to piss that away and get used to your high income too early. You want to grow into it as slowly as you can and never grow into it completely. And so if you're putting away 20, 30, 40% of your income, you know, you don't have to keep a very tight budget. Um, But if you find that your savings rate, the amount you're saving divided by your gross income is a single figure amount, well, it's probably time to get pretty serious about a budget. And the easiest way to do that is just take everything you spent money on in the last month and write it down and look at it and say, is that really what I value? And if it's not what you value, it's time to make some changes. You know, put your money on the things that make you happy. Well, if you're the kind of person that likes to go on a lot of trips, spend your money there. If you're a car guy, well, get a nice car. If, you know, having a big fancy house is really important to you, then get a big fancy house. You can do anything you want as a physician, but you can't do everything. And so you've got to realize that. And what a budget is, is simply a written plan that uh, helps you build wealth. But there's a few apps out there if you're looking for something to help you in that respect. Uh, you Need a Budget is a pretty inexpensive app run by a company not far from where I live. Uh, that's a very easy to use uh, you know, app on your phone that helps you budget. Dave Ramsey has one called Every Dollar. I think it's free. Um, and, uh, and that can help you budget as well. But the secret is really just figure out a way to not spend uh, you know, 20% or so of your income. And if you're putting 20% away off the top, you should feel free to blow the rest. I mean, go ahead, have a good time, go to Paris and and drive a Beamer, whatever you want to do if you're putting 20% a year away. But if you're not putting 20% a year away, maybe you need to cut up some credit cards, maybe you need to look at every penny you're spending, maybe you need one of those budgeting apps, you got to do something a little bit different. Well, that is excellent advice. And usually at this point in the podcast, we, uh, we jump into our tips and tricks section where we, you know, interview somebody about a, a specific surgical procedure or how they do something. Uh, but with you, I think we want to talk about if we can take everything we've learned today and narrow it down to uh, five great tips for the new white coat investor. Um, you know, what would your five tips be or even maybe three tips? And then also a follow up to that would be what would be your top three mistakes that some people make right out of uh, residency? Well, I mean, I think I think the most important tip is live like a resident, at least for two to five years after residency. I mean, you the thing is, doctors think they're rich. Your family thinks you're rich. Your spouse thinks you're rich. Your friends think you're rich. Your patients think you're rich. But the truth of the matter is you're the poorest person in the world. I mean, the bum on the corner living underneath the aqueduct, he has a net worth of zero. Well, what's your net worth when you come out of training? It's probably minus $300,000. You know, you're worse than broke. You got a long way to go just to get back to worthless. And so I think living like a resident for a few years and getting yourself back to broke is, is pretty darn important. So that would be my first tip. The second tip is you really need to insure against catastrophe. You know, the financial catastrophes in your life are you becoming disabled. If someone else depends on your income, you dying, um, you getting sued for a million bucks, you becoming ill or injured, uh, and, you know, your house burning down. Those are basically the financial catastrophes in your life. So insure against those and insure well against them, but don't insure against every little thing you can insure against. You don't need vacation insurance. You don't need iPhone insurance, et cetera. 
So my second tip would be insure against financial catastrophe. And then my third tip would be watch the fees. You got to be just really conscious about fees when you're interacting with the financial services industry. Everything that you pay in fees is money that is not working for you for the rest of your life. And that those fees, just like the compound interest on your investments, those fees compound over the next 30 to 60 years and can really add up to pretty substantial amounts. So those would be my three tips. Live like a resident, insure against financial catastrophe, and watch the fees. The biggest mistakes I see, uh, aside from overspending, is paying too much for bad financial advice and buying products that are designed to be sold, not bought. Uh, almost every doctor at some point in his career is going to be pitched a product like whole life insurance, uh, which is almost always a bad idea for a doctor to buy. And so I think just trying to avoid those products that are designed to be sold and, and seem seductive by the high commission salesman, uh, you know, using his high pressure sales techniques to sell them to you, you just got to avoid those. Okay. Uh, well, we'd use the, uh, we use the end of our podcast with our final five, which is uh, five questions that really get, allow people to get to know you. Uh, with you, I think we'll just ask a single question. And we typically ask, if you go back in time and see yourself on the first day of your internship, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, and I think in this case, if you go back and see your first day uh, on the, as an attending, what financial advice would you give yourself? Well, I think the advice I could have used on my first day as an intern is um, probably worry a little bit less about, um, you know, what other doctors think about you. I think I developed a thick skin over a few years in residency and, and could have used that probably more in the beginning of my residency. Um, but as far as best financial advice as a new attending, um, I think I did a pretty good job as a new attending. I think I hit the ground ready to roll. Um, but the main thing that I did well that I can pass on is I had a written financial plan for that first year of attending paychecks that I was going to receive before I ever received them. And I think that's what really helps you hit the ground running as a new attending with this new high income is actually knowing how you're going to spend it before any of that dollar comes in, any of those dollars come in. Great. And I think this has been a fantastic episode that we've all uh, learned a ton from. Where uh, would you direct our listeners? Uh, I know uh, the website, whitecoatinvestor.com and, and your book, uh, but any uh, last uh, recommendations you have for them to, to connect with you after this and to you know, get on the right financial track? Sure. We've tried to, to get this information accessible in whatever method you prefer it in. You know, I do some live speaking events. Uh, I have the book. I have the website. I have a podcast. I'm starting a YouTube channel. So however you like to get your financial information, I try to make it available. And it's all, you know, you can find it all at whitecoatinvestor.com. Well, Dr. Dolly, we can't thank you enough for giving us all of this great uh, free financial advice. And I'm sure our listeners will find this uh, very useful. Good. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot, Jim. Until next time, dominate the day.